for the for those of you that were in the morning session, um, thank you for putting up with me. Um, <laughs> for those for those that um, it raised more questions than as you started thinking about the scenarios, and so Roy and I were kind of just chatting about, you know, great example. What happens when the man who believes he's a woman comes to the church? How do we, how do we handle that? What's our church stance on it? How do, we, how do we enjoy the gospel to them? How do we share that with them? How do we, where, where does all that go? There's so many questions. Uh, you know, after, the, after this morning session, I had somebody come up and go, well, okay, so what's the medical side um, when somebody's born with both, both parts? And there's so many questions that are enjoined to this topic um, because the, the homosexual agenda has, has attached and tried to put ex, extras on there so that they can make, make it more, more palatable that they're fighting for the rights of all people engendered in this. And they've, you know, gender identity has been linked into this because it typically goes hand in hand. But, you know, I was in, in the research, one of the things that came up was the, this gentleman who felt like he was a woman, um, didn't feel the need to get the surgery, but he was living as a tra- transgendered woman, taking the hormones and everything else like that, but he was attracted to women. So how does that work? Where do they fit within this, this whole spectrum? And, and all of those things that you kind of just look and you go, yeah, this is a lot more messy than we realized. And this opens up a whole lot more than we're prepared to deal with. But we do need to deal with. And, and if, we are, if we are honest about sharing the gospel to whoever walks through the doors, we have to anticipate eventually these, these things are going to come in. And we're going to have to figure it out. Uh, those in San Diego, um, they were out. Um, they were doing peer uh, out on the pier doing uh, um, evangelization, and they sat and they met with this young woman, very nice young lady. They were, you know, talking, talking. She came back and, and they shared the gospel with her probably half a dozen times to a dozen times. She even attended their church a number of times, and it was about the fourth time in at the church that they found out that she's actually a he. And all of a sudden, you know, everything starts going off the rails. So there's so much, and as much as I would love to open it up to a Q&A, if, if we have time, and there'll be some pretty big caveats as to what that <laughs> Q&A would look like, um, I, would, I would welcome it, um, because it does. It's a, it's a very emotional topic for a lot of individuals, and it's a very, it's a topic that engenders quest, more questions, and that's, that's a good thing it should cause us to go and study more and to, to learn more and to love more. Um, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a pretty topic, but it's one that is definitely necessary. So with that, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, Almighty Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again to 
to worship you, to glorify you. Lord, we thank you that your word has gone out this morning hour all throughout this campus, but also all throughout this world. Lord, wherever it has been spoken, we know that your spirit has been present. And we just ask that you would continue to be with us and that he would speak through us and, and to us today. Lord, that our, our thoughts and our minds may be turned onto you and that your word may come forth alive in our hearts. We do pray this humbly in Jesus' name. For those that weren't in the morning session, um, we played this, but I want to, again, play it again, because I, I think the, not just, don't just listen to the, the content of what he's saying, it's, it's the attitude with which he's saying it. It's a, he's very, you could put Francis Chan talking to any homosexual at any point in time, and they couldn't get offended at what he's saying. <laughs> because it's not just the content that's good, it's, the, it's his approach. Um, and so I think it's a really good opportunity for us to look at both. I've heard it said of homosexuals that it doesn't matter how you were born, you need to be born again. How do you minister to those in San Francisco who are living in the homosexual lifestyle? That's good. That's good. I, I, I will say, man, my, my compassion, my life, my thought pattern, my love, everything has changed um, in, in that sense as far as it has really grown since I've been in San Francisco. I mean, like, like I said, the issues, the sin issues are, are so much more glaring. Um, but you know, the way I approach that is the same way I approach a couple that's ready to divorce. One of the issues that um, the homosexual community and those who struggle with it the reason why they, a lot of them have a problem with the church is we treat it as a sin that's so much worse than the others. And we'll excommunicate people for homosexuality, but we won't do it for divorce. And I do it for divorce. I, I, it's a terrible sin in the sight of God. Um, when you're cheating on your wife or you're, you know, you're going to leave her for some ungodly reason, an unbiblical reason, man, we pursue it, we, we fight against it. But I also, it's kind of like what I said about singleness. Um, this isn't really about sexuality as much as it is about surrender to the kingdom and of being a person who's about the kingdom that says, look, if I'm single the rest of my life, that's not the biggest thing in my life. My, it's not my sexuality or my desires, my sexual urges that define who I am. I find my identity in, are you kidding me? Like I speak to God? Are you kidding me? Like, like I can actually be his servant and, and, and I can do what he calls me to do and I, I can, man, I'm going to be with him forever. Like, where's that identity found in? Um, it's, it's no different from a... Be careful how I word this stuff, but... I guess to me, a lot of these sin issues are secondary. The bottom line is... Let's just start here. What would I say to people, whatever issue you're dealing with today, is are you willing to surrender to God no matter what he says? What if he said in this book, Chinese people have to stand on their heads? I mean, that's just an example. Like... I'll try to stand on my head. 
I mean, I'll, I'll just, he's God. I'm, I, you know, what if he said, Chinese people don't get to marry? He's God. I don't like that. But I'm going to surrender to that because I understand the difference between a creator and a created being. Like, so, so whatever. And, and before we even get to what does this book actually say, I have to say, do you just surrender? Would you surrender? I mean, if you disagree with God on an issue, would you still submit to him? I really believe that's the core issue here. And then to say, you know, if so, which that's the type of person I want to be also, then let's look at this book together. Because a lot of what following Jesus is about deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. A lot of this is about beating your body and making it your slave. It's about doing the, not doing some of the things you very much want to do. That's just a, a major part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so it's not even the, I don't even think that's the core issue. That's not the first thing I talk about. You know, if two guys come in holding hands or whatever, that's not the first thing I'm going to address. Um, I, I really think we, we jump to that too quickly rather than saying, okay, at the core of your being, do you believe in a creator? Um, and if he is your creator, would you surrender to whatever he asked you to do? And if so, then, you know, you, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on some of this. I mean, I'm a human being. I'm going to be off on things. Let's study this book together. Let me teach you how to study the book. And then you tell me, what does it say? Um, but I, I just think we've done a very poor job as a, as a church with a lot of sin issues. Um, I personally, from my best understanding of Scripture of this book, I go, man, it, it appears to be a sin to me. Um, but if you study it and your natural conclusion or your best conclusion is that it is not, and help me understand that. I want to see that, but I want to see it from scripture and not from reasoning because we're all going to reason. And we're all, we, a lot of times we fight for the things we want. I fight for some of the things I want and not necessarily the things that are true. Um, it's just, it's just what we do. So I wanted to start this way again because it really does engender the way in which we want to approach this. And I'll, I'll share, you know, a number of people afterwards also this morning, they, they were like, well, you know, we would have really liked to have heard more about, you know, some of the difficulties that you've had in dealing with, with Tim and some of the different things that have gone on. And, and I didn't... I wanted to, to keep it focused on, on the, the content, um, but we have a little bit more flex here, so I'll, I'll just share briefly um, a moment that, uh, that we had where you can speak the truth, you can do it in love, and you can not let the glaring element of, of the homosexuality be a, a main cause of the strife. Um, and so... A number of years back, um, he started attending a Christian church in Monroe, Michigan, that accepts gays as no problem at all. They they celebrate that element. Um, they also baptize. And they and they yeah they baptize and they do everything within that. So he was 
actually getting ready to be baptized. So he wanted us to come to the baptism. Obviously, that's a major issue for us. And so we had a, you know, I remember us as a family sitting and chatting about it and and talking about it. But ultimately, um, I sat on the phone with him for almost four hours, um, going over everything with him. And, And it was interesting because I didn't even cover the passages that we're talking about today. I said to him, I said, plain and simple, here's... Here's the point. Here's the point. Is at the end of the day, we know that we are called to be believers, and this is a you know kind of a standard of, of fruit that he expects us to show. And so I said, listen, from the day that you told me and you contacted me to say I've given my life to Christ, I said nothing would make me happier. I said we've been praying almost 20 years for this. If you truly have come to know Christ, hallelujah, I am going to be the first one to celebrate with you. But what I need to, I need to understand is this. From that day until today that we're talking, I said, I'm going to look through the 20 plus Facebook posts you've got and let's go through them and let's see if this engenders following Christ. And Christ is your Savior. I don't even care. We won't even debate the homeless. Let's completely set that aside for this discussion. And we spent the next four hours going through what he had posted online and what he was, what he was trying to display in, about his life. And I, I said, here's your post of you, a picture of you at a rave party. Now, where does that line up with Scripture? How, do you, how can you justify being a believer in Christ and having this type of a, you know, wanton drunkenness. Where does, that, where does that line up? How does that all fit in? Four hours later, we weren't getting anywhere and he was just getting more and more upset. And I said to him, I can't come because I'm afraid you're getting washed in the water and not the blood. And he didn't talk to me for about six months afterwards. But you have to... You have to approach it in a manner. I wasn't being rude. I, was not, I wasn't being excited. I was very calm. And it was just, it was a matter of fact type of speaking. I didn't even argue the homosexual component. I didn't need to. And so I wanted to share that with you because if you look at, at that approach, if you look at Francis Chan's approach, it's very common sense, down to earth. We're not coming at it from a high... I'm not saying I'm better. Listen, I'm, I, don't, I don't expect you to be perfect as a believer. None of us are. So why, are, why do we you know, expect a certain level? Well, because that's what the Bible expects of us. I'm not asking anything extra biblical. I'm not asking for you to be a saint. I'm asking you to simply follow Christ and, and display that in, in, your, in your walk. And I wasn't seeing it, and so he didn't really... You don't really like that too much, but you have to speak the truth. And that's, those are examples of things that we, you know, I mean, when, when he invited us, Mark and I spent a lot of time on the phone talking about what to, what to do. Do you go to the wedding? Do you not go to the wedding? Do you, and there's a lot of things that go into that. At the end of the day, there, there really is no clear-cut right answer in that. And you have to discern what it looks like. Each 
scenario is going to be different. Here's the key verses that, that they will go to regularly because these directly reference the homosexual element. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to break down each one of these and we're going to look at what, what the, the argument is and we're going to look at what the, the, the actual scriptural context is. So again, all of these are, will be readily available um, with the MP3 as well as if you wanted to. So, the Genesis account. God makes man and woman. We went through the scripture at the beginning. He makes a helpmeet. I mean, the, the original text means helper fit for him. So, who is a helper? The helper was a woman. It wasn't a man. Again, this was before the fall. God wanted it to be a man and to be two men caring for the garden, he would have. Or two women caring for the garden. But he didn't. He made a man and a woman. So the homosexual argument is that it doesn't say that it couldn't be another man. You're right, it doesn't. But if God intended that, he would have made it. And he wouldn't have referenced every single time throughout the rest of the Bible pointing to the definition of marriage as one man and one woman. And we also wouldn't see not just the biblical text, but the entire body of nearly 2,000 years of Christian writing referencing the exact same one man and one woman. So to say that we have this idea of, oh, you know, it could have been, because it doesn't say that it wasn't, you know, it's the, uh, it's the lawyer's way of getting around things. Um, I, was, I, I've, I deal with a lot of lawyers regularly for work, and I always tell my lawyer friends the same thing. What's the difference between a dead skunk on the road and a dead lawyer on the road? There's skid marks around the skunk. So, if you know a lawyer, feel free to share that with them. They really, they really enjoy that one. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that it is. It's, it's, we're trying to, to parse out just because it doesn't say this, it must intend that. That's not taking into effect the, the cultural backdrop. And so, 2,000 years ago, while, while homosexuality was a prevalent element in, in Greek and Roman culture, it's actually not at all prevalent in, in the Jewish culture. And it was because of the laws that God put in place in Leviticus and, and reinforced that it was not an issue at all in, in Israel. And it was an understood element of what was, what was expected within Israel. Because it typically was, the homosexual element was typically not just tied to the idolatry, but it was acts within the, the, the celebrations that you saw. There you go. We'll go, we'll go into that as well. The masculine-feminine element of it um, is, is a fascinating aspect, and it's even written into the text itself. Um, and so you'll, you'll see that as we go on. It's, it's actually a really fascinating part of the, of the discussion. So, next we get the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to pull them all, all up. Sodom and Gomorrah is a 
is a classic example of the depravity of man. And, and it's, its wickedness is so great that not only was it brutally wiped off the face of the earth, every single instance of it referenced in the Bible and extra-biblically point to how wicked that those cities were and how evil they were. But I also want to point out the fact that, again, we, we have to put a cultural backdrop to all of this. How many people have, uh, just a quick raise of hands, have uh, regular dealings with uh, Arabic people outside of church? Okay. If you were to ask an Arabic individual, is it wrong to kill someone? Their answer would be very different than our answers. Now, I know this because I live a block from the mosque. <laughs> and and we have, I have regular dealings with Arabic individuals around me. Um, and I have a number of Arabic clients. And it's fascinating. Even, even my clients, they will dwell on the idea of honor versus shame. Their whole culture. That's why they still have honor killings. The, the, the answer to, that an Arabic would give as to, would you, is it okay to kill someone, is, it depends. What are the circumstances? Did they bring dishonor to my family? Did they, did they shame my family? And so, in, the, in, the, in that whole backdrop of culture and honor and shame society, we have, to, we have to put this context of Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason their sin was so, wickedness, so wicked is because in their arrogance, they didn't even feel the shame of their sin. They didn't hide it. In, in, the, in this text, the entire city of so- cities or towns of Sodom and Gomorrah surround Lot's house. And in fact, depending on the, on the, um, on the actual version that you're reading, it will go through and it says every man from every, from every part of the city surrounded Lot's house. They, this, was a, this was a whole element of who they were. So much so that they rejected raping Lot's daughters for the, for the ple- pleasure of, of gang raping these two travelers into the city, two male travelers. They try to put the point that, you know, it's not really about, it's not really about the, the homosexuality. It's about the fact that they were not hospitable. And, and I, I, I read the one commentary on this, and he says, you know, it was all about, you know, the inhospitable, in, in being inhospitable. And the, the, if you, again, if you read the context and you read the entire passage, it says the, the men of the men of Sodom say to to Lot, "Let them out here. Send them out here that we may lie with them, or else we will do worse to you." Well, wait a minute here. If it's about hospitality, what are you going to do? Are you are you going to be more hospitable to me? Well, how are you going to make it worse if it wasn't about the homosexual act? If it wasn't about that element of it? You know, are you going to take away and use up all my plates? Are you going to come in and, and make my house all messy? 
What, what, how, how can you be more, less inhospitable? It just doesn't make any sense. The, that whole argument kind of falls apart. Um, and so, even when Jesus uses the reference with Capernaum, it's going to be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. He, he, because that was the pinnacle of evil. There was no shame in their wickedness. And that's, that's what it all comes down to. It. That's why I was referencing this morning. Gay pride. Pride month. You know, everything's about pride. And that's exactly... Ezekiel's reference is that they were arrogant and that they were proud. And, and so they always point to this, right? You know, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. This, is, this whole thing is about pride. Sodom and Gomorrah is not the strongest argument we can have as believers against homosexuality because of the, the way in which the text is written. But if you put the context behind it, it's a prime example of what we're not supposed to, what, they're, what we're not supposed to be doing. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't hold it up as such a wicked example all the way throughout. Here's the strongest um, text in the Old Testament, and this is the Levitical law about homosexuality. Um, and it's not just about homo- it's all about all sexual immorality. There's, I think, 13 verses before this verse that define every element of incest that you can't do. Whether it's, you know, and, and why. And it's funny because when you look at it and you, you actually read the, the entire text, and I would encourage you, but you just don't have time to do all of that. Um, so I want to get to the, the meat of this here. But when you go through the text, it's, the way it's in, in which it, it's written, if you, if you do all of these things, if you have... If you have sexual relations with your mother-in-law, you bring a dishonor to, to this. And so I'm going to point to a couple examples of, of where that aspect um, plays itself out later on in, in, in Scripture. Um, Amnon, right? Amnon sleeps with what? He rapes his half-sister. His stepsister, actually. I, you know, a half-sister. Yeah, he, he rapes his half-sister. And she, in order to cover the shame, begs him to go ask David for her hand in marriage. Absalom comes along, murders Amnon. Because of that breaking the law, technically... He did what he was. He did what the king should have done, which is he should have stoned him, or should have should have t- taken him out and, and, and stoned him for that sin, because that's what that's what Leviticus twenty says to do for it. But he didn't do that. It's fascinating because Absalom, after his exile, comes back and he breaks another element of this exact same text. As a, as a complete hypocrite, he goes and he sets up his tent on top of the palace and he sleeps with David's concubines, which is also forbidden in that exact same text. And again, David does nothing about it other than he takes those that he openly 
broke the law with, and he puts them away as if they're widows and never goes into them again. And again, what's the problem with Absalom? His pride. His arrogance in his sin, the lack of shame. And we see that in every aspect of Absalom's life. And so that's the context that we have this this here as the primary text. You see it. The, 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 the argument is it's the cultic law. It's part of that, the, the holiness code. It's part of a, a number of uh, these other elements. And they point out that all of these different aspects of the laws, whether they were moral or, or civic or cultic, that they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's a correct assertion. And this is where the arguments get really dicey um, because they're going to say, well, Christ came to fill the law. And you say, yeah, he did. So we're not bound by that law. No, we're not bound by that law to a point. And they're going to say, whoa, whoa. So why do you get to pick and choose which law? It also says in, in there, as part of the holiness code, that you're not allowed to eat shellfish. How many people like shrimp? I don't, so it doesn't really bother me. How many people wear mixed, mixed clothing where it's of, of different types of linens? Linen and cotton or linen of different fabrics? Yeah, okay, great. Well, you're breaking that code too. So if those ones don't apply, well, clearly these ones don't either. That argument, again, falls apart because in the New Testament, you see the elements of sexual purity once again reaffirmed being maintained. And so there's ways in which God reveals that in the New Testament to show that. Here's, here's how it all comes to, to, to be, right? And so they also argue that when we, when we look in the New Testament, we have a clear declaration that the cultic laws uh, were about what is clean and unclean. Now we, this is the, they use the example of Peter. And look, at Peter was, you know, these, are, these were cultic laws. And now all of a sudden, Peter's allowed to eat pork and he's allowed to, to do all of these other things. Well, if God said those are clean, then again, this, this is about ritual cleanliness. That's what the holiness code was about. No. Holiness code was about a little more than just ritual cleanliness. Um, we know the holiness code and the holiness the section of the, of the law, Levitical law, was given for the purity of the nation, not just sexually, but, but to maintain the purity and the health of the nation physically. And so we see a lot of the, a lot of the elements of the holiness code, the washing and all, and all of the different aspects were there for the, for the well-being of the physical nature of, of the, the Jewish people as well. Um, so, so that's uh, last one. Um, this is, I love this argument. This one was a, a, kind of one of the funniest ones. The Levitical law only applied to Jews of that time. And when Christ came and he abolished that law, he, uh, Jesus, because he didn't say anything, now allows homosexuality. I was like, wait a minute here. Let's follow the logic. If God thought it was okay, but just not for the Jewish people to do it during that time period. But once Christ comes, then it's okay. It's, good. it's a good thing for the Jews to do. Well, no, it just seems to really take a huge jump in logic here. 
All right. Um, only the New Testament does, in fact, remove the Old Testament restrictions as it results as it relates to clean and unclean ritually. Um, but it, it always upholds the sexual relations. So, a simple way that you can you when if this argument is ever presented to you, a simple way to deal with this is. If you're saying to me that the sexual component of the Holiness Code doesn't apply, then it's okay to have incest with your mother, father, sister, and go down the list. Well, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. Well, is it or is it not? It's okay to have bestiality. So now you open up the definition of marriage to animals, close family relations, multiple partners. The list goes on and on because you've eliminated that sexual element. And so as soon as you've, you've like we talked about in the beginning, well, as soon as you've removed the God component out of love, the love itself becomes lost. And it's whatever perverted mind go, you, you want to see happen. That's what Romans 1, which we'll go through shortly, talks about is that, that depravity of man and that, that those perverted desires that go along with that. Uh, so there's no indication that any sexual activity prohibited in the Old Testament is now permitted in the New Testament. Not at all. Um, and in fact, if we take the New Testament and we look at it, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, took the Old Testament standards for, for sexual purity and he raised the bar. He actually brought in a higher standard of sexual purity than ever was before. Because before, it was, if you committed the act of adultery, you broke the law. What did Jesus say? If you look on a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's a totally different ballgame. Now the standard is here in comparison to here. Because this was only the physical act. This is the intent of the heart. And so... If anything, what we see is the sexual laws being tightened on us, not loosened in the New Testament. No indication that the Old Testament law restricts sexual activity mere to ritual cleanliness. So that's another big aspect. Um, Nobody from the LBGTQI, whatever it is, now uh, there's always a new acronym to it, um, argues that incest and bestiality are acceptable. But I don't understand why. It's all in the same text. They're all, they should all be acceptable or they should, none should be acceptable. And that's where we're at right here. So, this is their, uh, I love this argument. Matthew 7, 17. Are, you'll hear almost every Christian gay person, and I'm putting that in quotations, because it's hard for me to accept that element that you can identify yourself by your sexual orientation and still really focus on being Christ-like. Because Christian is our identity, not the fact that I'm heterosexual or homosexual. Our identity is in Christ. So, but they'll, they'll often talk about this. You know, the good fruit, you know, and, and you know, all of the harm that the church has done against Christians or against, against gay, gay people and those in the homosexual movement. And listen, I'm, just because I'm discounting the, uh, the, the biblical argument doesn't mean I'm saying the 
Fred Phelps of the world. Um, and for those of you who, who know who Fred Phelps is, he's the Westboro Baptist pastor who goes around protesting at every gay rally and is just hateful. There's no other word to say it. That, that's not correct. I'm not supporting that by any stretch of the imagination by, by identifying a biblical argument that says we haven't, we've done wrong. We can identify that the, the church as a whole has not been very inclusive and very accepting of individuals who come out with, with a homosexual nature. Um, doesn't mean we accept the sin. We cannot. This argument is faulty because you can't justify a sin based on the fact that church people, that, that church hurt people living in that sin. It's like saying we shouldn't ex- that we should accept the unrepentant murderer who is excommunicated from the church because the church hurt his feelings. We would never, we would never expect that. But why would we expect that of somebody creating and having another sin? Why would, would we? Ex- would we justify the alcoholic living in, in their sin again, over and over and over again, if they weren't willing to repent of it? Would we not discipline them the same way? Any sin, take any sin you want. If they're unrepentant of it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. We shouldn't accept it. And regardless of what, whether feelings get hurt. Now this is the... This is the the next three that we're going to go through are the, are the big ones that we're going to look at. Um, Apostle Paul spends a lot of time focusing this argument and building the element of the law all the way up. And so we start with this. So they agree, homosexuals agree, that nature refers to um, what, is, what is an accepted custom. And then the violation, you know, uh, spoken of by Paul, this is, what this is their argument, you know, that... It, the violation of nature was that homosexuals, it was heterosexuals who were, who were doing homosexual acts. That's, that's what was wrong in the nature of it. Okay. I don't see how that's ever defined within the context of that, because if you look at, and then, because Apostle Paul then goes further back, and we'll kind of look at what he, what he actually says. So he suggests each, each violator starts off with a true knowledge of God, and then they just work their way down. What I found interesting is after I was listening to a, a debate by, with Dr. James White, um, who, if you can listen to some of his debates, there's about a whole bunch on YouTube where he, he goes back and forth in open debates. Um, excellent debater, really, really knows his stuff biblically. Um, and, and at the end of the one debate, um, it was fascinating because he asked the, the, uh, the opposing, uh, the pro-homosexual side, he said, uh, he said so you're saying that you're, the reading of this, the context of this, that these are, this is a progression of sin, and that the, the ones at the bottom are worse than the ones at the top. He said, yes. He said, so being disobedient to parents is worse than, you know, homosexual acts, and worse than, and he just listed off all of the things that, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And you're like, okay, well, right there, just kind of, you know, you see the whole argument just fall right apart because he hadn't properly gone through his whole argument and looked at 
at the, the, the entire context of the, of the verses. So just be very aware um, that they're trying to use this as a building component. Um, others who support homosexuality suggest this passage is truly about lust and unbridled passion. It's not about the act itself, but it's, it's why it's done and the way in which it's done. It's not about the actual act. Um, so the homosexual act is tied to idol worship, is the other one that you're going to see, and it's not about committed, loving, long-term sexual, you know, homosexual relationships. And that's a, that's a falsehood in and of itself when you look at the statistics and you look at, there are hundreds of studies, and most of them are done by homosexuals within academia, and every one of them come back the same way. The, the fidelity rate within long-term, and they, they use the word monogamous, but it's not monogamous at all. Um, there are a number of studies out there that show that the homosexual male who comes out in his early 20s, by the time he is 65, if he reaches 65, will have had between 500 and 1,000 different partners. So it is unbelievable. And, and anecdotally, um, one of my clients has um, their brother-in-law owns um, two main gay bathhouses in Philadelphia. And it's just, it's, it's blatant, it's blatant unbridled passion. There is just no other, there's no other way to put it. It's, it's just disgusting on any level. Um, to see what is, is dealt with there. So whenever you hear somebody talking about long-term committed homosexual monogamous relationships, and it's funny because with that, the, the gay researchers have identified that part of the reason for it is that the parts don't go together properly. So you can't have a mutual um, a mutual release of that passion at the same time because you have to take turns. That's, that, that's actually coming from homosexual researchers as one of the reasons why. It's, it is just, and, and in fact, actually, Slate magazine, which is not at all a conservative um, online source or anything, any of that nature, um, put out, a, it, was a, it was a gay... Um, reporter who put out a story called um, uh, Homosexual's Dirty Little Secret and talks about this nature of th- this hookup culture within, within the, the homosexual realm and the hate mail that came and all, like, I, I mean, reading through the comments after the article, it was unbelievable to see. I mean, these are supposed to be the most tolerant people. They're supposed to be you know, loving and kind. They're supposed to be happy. And, and yet, it was, you know, they don't want to talk about these, these little dirty secrets that go on. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable to see. And it's not just within the, those that claim to not be Christian gay people. It's very prevalent even within the, the homosexual gay movement. It's and, and Christ, gay Christian movement. So be, be very aware. Um, Paul, Paul is actually talking about the biography of, of a sinner rather than, you know, here's the mankind's nature in general. 
His argument begins with a passage and it goes all the way, not to the end of that chapter, but it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And it says, everybody stands in the wrath of God. That's his whole point of, that, of the first three chapters of Romans is, is to prove that all have sinned and come short of the glory. Um, and he, and he, he talks about it, he presents the status of the Gentile world and demonstrates that it spiraled downhill over the centuries and how depraved it's become. And then he says, as those of who you once were turn away, and he's talking, you know, those are things that you once did. You've repented of them. Turn away from them. Don't be known by them. Don't be part of that anymore. So the first, half, first part of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 3, he addresses the Jewish people and who, at the time, definitely considered themselves superior to the Gentiles. And he connects it back to the Romans 1, 18 to 31 for the rest of his argument that stretches into chapter 3 and puts the entire context of this, of this area, this text. So, again, the, the idea is people turn to others of the same sex as sexual partners, according to Apostle Paul, and, and he's talking against, again about that exchange. All of the text talks about that. He's exchanging the natural for the unnatural, the holy for the unholy. He, he, he uses about three or four different examples within that text where he said he's using that, that exchange mentality, right? And the whole idea is, it's all about idol worship. He is saying homosexuality is a form of idol worship because you are worshiping the creation, not the creator. And that's, that's a big, big difference. So, again, they, they will use the argument, oh, you know, this is about, idol, this is about the, the male um, prostitution and using eunuchs and the sex trade and the sex slaves and and everything else like that. But that's not what the text says. The text says, men exchanged the natural for the unnatural. And what it, is, it says, that they burned one for another. This is a mutual, loving exchange in their mind. This is, a, this is about one for another. And the women, and he, and, he, and he spells out that it's not just men, it's women exchanging one for another as well. And, and how, how we look at that, again, why would he, why would Apostle Paul take and, and identify both men and women in that context? He does it to be able to show that, the, that, the, that those, those unbridled passions weren't just about unbridled passions, but they were about more, it was, the, it was the entire act of it. It was the entire element of exchanging and changing that whole order of creation. They were consumed with passion for one another. Um, hardly descriptive of, of heterosexuals forcing themselves to go against their nature or of a two-party relationship in which one, part, one partner is being forced to go against his or her will. So again, he condemns female and female. So the whole thing is that it's not just about this pederasty, this, this whole notion of, of young boys and, and older men, and this whole notion that, that was you know, going on. This is about categorically same-sex intimate relations, period. 
And he goes back, to, again, to Genesis 1 and 2 for the betrayal of the male-female sexual, sexual intimacy of unnatural. This was, I love this. Um, Tertullian was, was, a, uh, was a second or third century. He wrote quite a bit, and we've referenced him over the years. Um, and I know there's a number of people who, you, if you read some of his writings, you'd think he was actually applying them to today's day and age in culture. Um, he speaks a lot on entertainment. He speaks a lot on, on everyday common living. Um, and so he, he's, he's got some pretty neat aspects. When Paul asserts that males and females changed among themselves the natural use of the creature and that, into that which is unnatural, he violates the natural way. And that's, or validates the natural way, sorry. He validates the natural way. He identifies creation in the, in the entire context of this verse. So Mark, this is to your point earlier, um, the idea of male and female. So these are the, the Greek words that are used for homosexual behavior. Sinekoites refers to the active sexual partner in a homosexual act, and malakos um, refers to the passive partner or the receiver. And so it's interesting because they'll actually use this in, um, in relationship to the other Greek word that's referencing just general homosexuality or just general sexual impurity or sexual uh, immorality, and they'll reference it as pornea, which kind of ironic that that's where, it, where the Greek word comes from, um, and the whole aspect of sexual immorality and sexual impurity. Um, you'll see in, in the Greek, if you, as you're studying the scripture, you'll see pornea used for everything from adultery to fornication to whatever. And so it's, it's a, it's an, that's a more of an all-encompassing component, but you'll actually find these words refer to... Um, the malakos will refer to it in the, in the female component. It'll, it'll talk about the woman um, referring to it as, as a passive partner. But our synecotes is always referenced in the homosexual component. And so, it, because the actual words broken down, um, this is actually a combination of two words, and it actually means man-bed, if you take the, the direct literal translation on it. And so... Uh, pro-homosexual scholars, however, challenged these translations um, of the two Greek words and tried to limit it to adulterous homosexual relationships. Again, this whole idea of, you know, we're going to take this, we're going to twist it, we're going to find a, a way around it. Um, well, others have offered alternative definitions, again, the whole idea of uh, pederasty. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 to uh, the homosexual argument is is a type of you know argument. So it's talked about. This is all about the prostitution. It's always tied to to the notion of of abuse or sexual abuse or some form of of inequity between the the, the partners involved in the in the homosexual act. You'll see this a lot in as when they start talking about um, the disparity amongst the uh, amongst the the two. They'll reference even they'll try to tie an economic disparity. So if you know the rich man you know, sexually assaulting the poor man, and you're like, okay, can, I mean, how many more things can you throw at the wall and hope they stick? It's just not working here. Um, 
you know, talking about the whole idea of, well, back in those days, we didn't have, you know, an understanding of what that, you know, a, a loving long-term relationship talks about. There is, it is replete with what's out there. The, the, there was not, there was not a, a realm that was not touched by the Greeks or the Romans. And it was, it's, it's in all their writings. There's nothing hidden about it. We have the history on our side. We just need to learn it. And so let, I really highly encourage you to do that. Um, Paul was regarded as a highly educated man of his time, apart from his Jewish education. He was raised as a, in a Gentile environment. You know, he, his ministry throughout the Roman Empire, he knew about long-term committed gay relationships. It's, it, there's no way he couldn't have as a learned individual. So this idea of that he didn't really know, he didn't really know what that was mean. Um, so it's interesting. Apostle Paul also combines a synechoites with malikos. And he, he even short forms it even more as to point out it's all about the, the idea of men, bedding men, and it's about this, this joint burning one with another. It's not about this, this masculine versus feminine. Who's the, who's the male? Who's the female? Even though the wording itself talks about that, it doesn't make any difference. It is what it is. But it's ironic that in, in, in light of all of this, there does tend to be that, which one's the man in the, in the, in the, in the relationship, right? And so it's a, it, it's a, it's a funny part. Did Paul intend to apply the terms across the board to all homosexual activity, or is Paul's reference to homosexuality more in a limited context? All right. Christians have always understood, historically, that the writings of the New Testament were under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as were those of the Old Testament. Not one non-traditionalist, those who would uphold our view, um, force us to con- con- confront the same issue that somebody reading Leviticus or reading 1 Corinthians has a problem. Our arguments are consistent all the way through. There's you got to try to finesse the you got to try to finesse the scripture to make it work, and we don't want to we don't want to live that way. In order to believe the homosexual interpretation of this passage, we have to believe that a practice which is blessed by God, who Himself gave. Same-sex attraction as a gift to be enjoyed, nevertheless, gives no explicit or implicit blessing in the New Testament. Right? So, because we, we, we know that God is perfect, we know that he's able to you know, do all these things, and if he's given this as a, as a gift to the homosexual, this attraction, it comes from God from, in, in their mind, then how, how do you justify it with the rest of the scripture? It doesn't work. Um... So now we move on to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And we see, again, the same words. Sinequites is being used. Um, and he, the, the way in which 1 Timothy chapter 1 is written, he hearkens back to the exact same wording as Leviticus 18.22. And you'll see the way in which he does it. Um, and so you'll, you see the way that Leviticus uses those two words together. You'll see the way that Apostle Paul uses, again, those exact same two words together. 
a man lying with another man as he would with a woman. It, it, he doesn't, he's not referencing, because there's a number of other references in the, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Levitical law where it talks about rape, and it spells, very, it spells out very clearly. So that's not what, what this is talking about. It's talking about very clearly a man lying with another man as he would with a woman. The law is good for men and women outside of the saving knowledge, outside of a saving knowledge of Christ, is valuable for them to bring to bring them to the cross. All right. So here's some of the most common myths and arguments that you're going to find. The Bible was written when there was no understanding of a loving homosexual relationship. Levitical law doesn't apply to Christians because Christ came to fulfill the law. If you hold the Old Testament to the Old Testament ta- uh, law of homosexuality, you can't wear clothes of mixed fabric or eat f- shellfish. Again, what a joke. Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned for inhospita- inhospitality and ill treatment of the poor, not for homosexuality. Loving God would not expect you to live a celibate life just because you're a homosexual. What about those that are single? What does he expect of that? Does that mean you can just give in to your unbridled passions too? Because it's natural. It comes naturally to you. And if you're in a loving relationship, well, maybe. The arguments fall, fall away every time. Um, since Jesus was silent about homosexuality, then it must be okay. Calling homosexuality a sin is judging, and judging is a sin, so therefore you can't do that. And preaching against homosexuality causes gay teenagers to commit suicide. These are, you, you will see these constantly throughout any of the this is kind of I'm just trying to pull together and piecemeal in the best way so I'll put that back real quickly how do we show love to homosexual, homosexuals without judging them or us being called bigots I looked up the definition for you so that I could get it exactly and it's being intolerant on a stance with no with no appreciation or acceptance of who that individual is. So for those that don't understand, a lot of, of liberal media will utilize that term. A lot, of, a lot of people in the gay agenda will mo- utilize that term as a bigot. As a, it's, it's like, it, it's on par with being called a racist. So how do we show them love? We treat them like people, not issues. We show them love. We get to know them. Regardless whether they are a homosexual or a heterosexual who is promiscuous or he's a drunk individual who walks in off the street, we treat them all the same. We show them love. We, we reach down into their lives. And you know what? It's going to get dirty, and it's going to raise a lot of questions, like we were talking about on the, at the intro. There are going to be some very difficult times when we actually get into the, into the heart of it. And you know, this is a, a, a brief video. I, want to, I was very moved by it. I think appreciate it. Eric was raised in a Christian home. And yet, from a young age, he realized that he was different. And people
people let him know that he was different. They treated him like he was some subhuman person. They mocked him, they teased him. Instead of calling him Eric, they called him Faggot. On one occasion, he was assaulted with a full classroom present, including the teacher. When he finally came out to his parents and told them that he was gay, instead of loving him, instead of listening to him, they kicked him out of the house. They said he was disgusting, unnatural, perverted, and damned to hell. Eric tried to find love elsewhere, and he, he tried to tell other teens who were uh, in similar positions as he was that it gets better to hang in there. A month later, Eric killed himself. The church needs to do better. The church needs to realize that people will gravitate to where they find love. And if they don't find true, authentic love in the church, they will go outside the church to find love. I'm fascinated that Jesus drew all kinds of people to himself, the, the marginalized, the, the outcast. They were particularly drawn to Christ. And yet I don't think they walked away wanting to kill themselves. You see, the church needs to improve this discussion. We cannot sit around debating some issue. We cannot dissect some conversation as if it's not real people. You see, homosexuality is not some issue to be debated, but people to be loved. Again, when we look at, when we look at it, we have a number of choices we have to make. How are we going to handle when you, when, you ha when you deal with the gay worker or you, you know, you're one of your kids has, has a homosexual friend and they want to go over a sleepover at their house. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to have that discussion in a way where it's about the people, not the issue? Where it's about the people, not the sin? How are you going to show them the love of Christ. That's a hard one. Again, there's no easy answer. These are not easy questions, and there's certainly not any easy answer. It's going to take a lot of time praying, asking for, for Spirit's guidance. It's going to take a lot of time discerning and trying to figure out what the right answer is. Because it's not simple. It is very complicated. We can choose to love, to love the person regardless of the sin. We can choose to be non-judgmental. We can choose to think deeper, not differently than before. We can choose to learn more and study to help us reach the homosexuals. And I would encourage you guys. I have learned a great deal, and I have been dealing with it for 22 years in our family. And I thought, eh, I, I, I could probably make my way around the argument. I was sorely mistaken. I did not do, I did not do my homework the way that I needed to do it. And you know, 
I feel much more prepared now to have that discussion. But, uh, but I can tell you right now, it takes, it takes a lot of effort, and it's going to take a lot of effort for us to, to be able to come to a level of understanding and a level of knowledge that you can, you can go th- forward with that. We can choose not to be afraid because they're different than us. And I think the hardest part about homosexuality is it, it feels so disgusting to us because it's, so, it's not natural to us. And it's not natural at all. So it's, it, and because of the, the whole homosexual movement is about pride, and they are going to flaunt it and put it in your face. And how do you handle that with grace and with, with kindness? That's a hard one. We can choose to show grace and mercy. And again, I'm going to end with the way that I ended the first one, that video clip. I want you to... Pay attention. So the, the first um, black lady is actually a um, pop singer who was homosexual and, uh, and has since actually turned her life to Christ. So I don't, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but we've got about a million other things going through it right now. So, but I so wanted you know. people to tell me that I'm something, that I'm significant, that I'm somebody. And women, I think, uh, became one of the main sources of that for me. I was beginning to form a a deep attachment to guys rather than to girls. She went into the pain of the dysphoria of her gender. My brother, now my sister, is really suffering. And I did not know that, and I did not have clues. I thought that because of my actions, that I was too far gone. I was the hypocrite of hypocrites. Christians who would consider themselves conservative of some nature or evangelical need to learn to think deeper when it comes to the LGBT community and people who identify as LGBT. Now notice I didn't say different because I don't think that we should change our perspective on what God says about intimacy. Intimacy is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage and anything outside of that is not his design, it's sin. But we need to learn to think deeper about people because nobody is shallow. Everybody is complex. Everybody has a story. Everybody is deep. And so we have to think about people from a different perspective. I remember a conversation that I had with my mom one time, and she told me, you know, the last several years of my relationship with Vera, we weren't sexually intimate. My mom wasn't a Christian yet, but I looked at her and I said, well, if you're not sexually intimate, that means you're not a lesbian anymore. And she said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. I'm part of a cause and a movement. I have relationships. I have acceptance. I have grace and forgiveness. And I said, you just described the church. And she said, no, I didn't. Why in the world would I go somewhere where people would shame me and think less of me? And it really dawned on me in that moment that people like my mom, or not everybody who identifies as LGBT, but a large majority of people would say that how they identify as LGBT is many things, but the smallest of which is who they want to have sex with. And yet, for Christians, that is the biggest thing that we usually go after, right? I mean, to be called a pedophile or to see the print on a daily basis, you know, to be called a sexual deviant on a daily basis, openly, you know, it wears on you. We can live without sex. We can't live without intimacy. But in our culture, those two things have become the same. And we, culturally, we can't think of intimacy without thinking of sexual intimacy. God designed us 
to be to find him for himself and to his glory. So don't ever choose to think that someone's shallow. Do the hard work. Be like Jesus. What is their name? Who are they? What do they like to do? What do they enjoy? Who are their family? Where were they raised? How about we start getting to just know people for who they are instead of pursuing them for what they do? References and resources, please feel free to tap into them. There's a ton of stuff out there. Um, yeah. Certainly. One of the things. Yeah. But one of the things that I want you to, I, I want to encourage you, is to find out. Don't just close your mind. I remember when he was just a small guy in grade school. And he would come home crying sometime and says, kids call me Tink. But you see, the thing is, I didn't try to find out anything about homosexual lifestyle or what it was all about. I closed my mind and let him find out for himself. And I, I believe that's one of the failures I had as a father. And I'd like you to, to, to encourage you all if you see that in anybody, and the closer they are to you, the more likelihood that you will try to do that. Don't close your mind. Find out and see how you can help them while they're, they're still in that, in that flexible mode before they solidify. I hope, I don't know if you, if you want to sit around and have a question and answer. I don't know how much time we normally, we normally do. Um, but you're welcome. If anybody has any pressing questions, it's Brother Costa. It was said, how are we going to approach these people? The Word of God teaches us He loves the sinner but not the sin. Mm -hmm. So we can love them the same but not their action but their doing. Exactly. We should not rebuke them before all or even uh, two and two to approach them more what the Word of God is saying if they believe. Mm -hmm. 60 years, maybe not even 60 years in Europe I talk with a person like that. And I try to explain it to him according to the Bible. If you believe this is so, if you don't believe that, it's, it's different. 
So my approach is that, that we should still do the same as God loves the sinners, but not the sin. Yes. Any other questions? I guess a concern I've had as a church, I thought about this for a while, is what if uh, a homosexual couple knocks on our back door and says, hey, we'd like to get married? Is there a preacher around? I think eventually or initially or eventually we probably would have to say no. There might be some discussion involved. But then if it goes viral, you know, like homosexuals being rejected at the business, oh, yeah. that's gone viral. I think it might be a challenge someday to consider that might be happening, maybe not to our church, but a church that wouldn't marry homosexuals. Excellent point, and it, and it does lend itself to... Okay, sure, I just won't. It, it does lend itself to um, an interesting legal element, and it's actually one of the reasons that a lot of Christian churches have taken up to put that in their statement of faith right away, so that they say, listen, here's our definition of marriage. It's right in our statement of faith. If you're a member of the church, we'll marry you. Here's the way that it goes. And, and, and they avoid that aspect because in order to be married in the church, by the church, you have to be a member of the church. And by doing that, you, you've eliminated that aspect because you, there's a constitutional right to be able to limit your membership it's, the only, it's one of the few areas you can actually discriminate in because if you're in, introducing a membership component in any organization, any religious organization, then there's an accepted element of, of a statement of beliefs that, that would be common. And so if you're not in a common statement of beliefs, then you're not going to be married within the church. So that's, that's, that's the legal side of it, but that's my legal background coming out, sorry. There was also on the radio questions and answers about these things and I was listening to that and there was a man with, uh, talking about Christianity and the lady would come and she says I am a Christian too and the man said to her how can you say that you are a Christian when you are a prostitute and she said I keep these two things separate oh, yeah. this is what is, some of them they believe is oh, that yeah. a man or a woman Okay. Uh, and and it, it that speaks more so to the, <laughs> to the depravity of man and the state of, of mankind today. Again, when we take out the agape part, when we take out the God out of the, out of the relationship, it, it's easy to revert the rest of it. It doesn't. It's it's an easy step to follow. Oh, sorry, Pat. I've had a discussion with a friend of mine who's not a homosexual. He probably leans to the left. And his argument is homosexuals will say, we're born this way. God made us this way. And we try to go straight, and we're uncomfortable with it. We can't handle it. So it's like it comes from God, according to what, and maybe you've oh, yeah, read abs- about that. Oh, I, that's a very common element of, of the argument. Um, but... We, we, see from, we see from the medical side that that's not the case. We see 
um, also an interesting study, uh, up to 60% of gay men identify on surveys that they regularly also feel attractions to women. So that's, uh, again, that's a repeated study. That's, those are very common statistics in, in relationship to it. Um, so the element of, you know, I'm born this way and this is the only thing I know is completely out to lunch. Um, there's not a whole lot there to, to that argument. I just wanted to ask if you can explain from your first form, um, you had mentioned something with um, kids that were brought up oh, okay. with um, gay parents yeah, yeah. or whatever. Okay, let me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit further. So the, the study has been um, children who either were born into a heterosexual relationship that one of the parents turned homosexual or have been born in via either artificial insemination or adoption that are raised in homosexual homes, over 93% of them actually turn out to be straight, even though they're raised purely by homosexuals. So the idea of it being a, an innate or a born component, it doesn't, doesn't lend itself to that. So well, what you'd see is typically you'd see, and, and they use twins in a lot of homosexual um, studies, because if you have genetically identical people, as, as you know, twins are, not fraternal twins, obviously, but, but the um, identical twins, you, you, would see, you would expect, because they have the exact same genes and they have the exact same element, that you would expect to see both of them going one way, but you don't see that. You'll actually see they've actually there's a number of studies where they actually followed a, a set of identical twins that were separated at birth on adoption. One was raised by homosexuals. One was raised by heterosexuals, and and the, the it was it was reversed. The the twin that was raised by the homosexuals came out straight, and 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 it was the opposite on the on the heterosexual family that raised the, the identical twin. So you'll, you, you'll find they use twin studies a lot because of the genetic component, because it eliminates a whole element of, of maybe it was a gene component. Well, no. It should, if it's a gene component, it should display the exact same whether you're, on, you're raised one way or raised another. This, did that answer your question? Okay, sorry. Yeah, and, and that's the issue also uh, with all the gene component uh, being used in all the studies for all kinds of sicknesses. Uh, because if you can tie it to the genes, it's not your fault. Yeah, it's a way to abdicate responsibility. It's not what I did that's causing my sickness. Well, not just the fact that we're fallen in a, living in a fallen world and these things happen to people. There are things that we do that causes our sicknesses. Yeah. And, and in the same manner, uh, homosexual is, is something that you get, get yourself involved with. You do. Yeah. And now, don't blame well, it's, it's always... mom and dad 
If, if it's you, not their fault. Yeah. Sorry. So you don't have Although to fight against it. Although we have failed, and I, and I admit that I have failed, but that's only one part of the story. There are two oh, yeah. others that didn't work that way. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Keep talking about it. You know what? I think the, the failure that we have had as a, as a denomination is that we have completely ignored it. It doesn't happen in our circles. And, and I think that's, to our shame, we need to, we need to have more conversations about it. We need to be prepared, uh, you know, particularly amongst the leadership, that when something happens... We need to be prepared to, to know how to respond. You know, when, uh, when, when, you've got, when you've got a bunch of, you know, teenage kids that you're counseling with through, through the, you know, through the, the um, repentance process, how do you answer them when they tell you that they've had homosexual attraction? <laughs> Stop it? No, we, got, we need to come up with we need to come up with a good, good plan. We need to be able to know how to reach these kids and how to touch them in a way that they need, they need to be dealt with. Anything else? I don't want to cut anybody short here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great afternoon.